Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes. In for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Coming up, we'll hear about the Museum of Design Atlanta's current exhibition, which explores the areas where art meets environmentalism. Plus, our new series, H. Johnson's Jazz Moment, premieres today. And later, he'll teach us about jazz legend Anita O'Day. First, the prolific artist Steve Keen embodies a DIY rock and roll attitude. Having painted over 300,000 pieces, you might recognize his work from some album covers like Pavement's Wowie Zowie or Why Are You Okay from Band of Horses. His distinctive style and technique has led him to be described as the assembly line Picasso by Time Magazine. Keen has a democratic approach to art and has been known to give away his paintings or sell them for as little as $2 in an effort to bring art to the people. Longtime friend and fan Daniel Ephraim has spent the last six years compiling a photographic collection of Keen's work, and through the support of Keen lovers from around the world, Ephraim has now produced the Steve Keen Art Book, a collection of pictures and stories that celebrate the wildly unique world of Steve Keen. Both artist and producer join me now via Zoom. Steve Keen and Dan Ephraim, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Hello. Nice to be here. So, Dan, what was your original connection to the art of Steve Keen? I originally ran into Steve's work in the New York City indie rock music scene in the 90s. And he was the first uh, artist, uh, painter that I had run across where um, he, he was selling his work at merch tables at these rock shows. And it just made such an impression on me and, and my, my friends and would-be colleagues in the music world where we were, in essence, going to all these different shows, usually on the same track, like same three or four clubs. Um, and we, you know, quite often would see his work at these clubs. And it just made an impression. And it the impression was not just that, oh, I really like this, but, oh, I can, I can afford hand-painted art and buy a CD <laughs> or, right. a, or a piece of vinyl or music from the band. Like I can support both. I, and it just was such a unique thing to me. It opened my eyes to the art world and that it, it can be for everyone. And it really made me feel included. Mm. And I think that's what resonated with people around the world about Steve's work. Some of, I mean, this is just one of the things, but 
you know, to me, this is this is where it started was it germinated from this music scene in, in the 90s. And Steve, that music scene was obviously incredibly important to you as well. And my understanding is that you were a DJ for the college station WTJU out of University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Can you elaborate on how your experience as a DJ and as an indie music lover influenced your artistic path? Well, yeah, my wife and I, we would do these overnight shows once a week or every two weeks. You know, we loved loved the new music. We were we were older than a lot of the students, so we played a lot of old music and kind of combined it with the new music at the time, which was then Nirvana had just like come out that month. Never mind. Mm-hmm. And just to be in a basement surrounded by tens of thousands of albums and every album was somebody's dream that it was going to be the greatest album or or a record of how they lived for that year and the and their friends of that year. And I've always loved people making homemade books, little fanzines to promote, you know, their writings or their music. And, you know, this is before people had websites. Nobody had a computer at home, really. And I just I just got so connected to the idea, well, how come art doesn't seem fun like this? You know, I went to art school, I did all the right things, you know, and I loved, loved making art, but I didn't really, know how to connect to have an audience or what kind of people would like my work. So all that stuff I just kind of threw away and kind of decided to not even think of myself as an artist, but as a person who makes information, little bits of information that go out in the world. And the way rock bands would have to be brave enough to you know, get in a van with their friends and drive seven hours and maybe eight people would be at the show and they'd have a shoebox of cassettes or CDs that they would try to sell. And I just thought that was so brave and exciting. So that's stuff I think about every day. Yeah, no doubt. You know, you mimic that bravery with live demos that you've done and your art shows where you paint hundreds of works at once. It's a very interactive when we talk about bravery, were you scared the first time you did a show that included basically a live performance? Um, I don't know if I was scared. The first time I actually had a real show, it kind of caused a little bit of controversy. It was in Philadelphia at an art school and some of the art teachers didn't like it because I was painting live in the front window and it ended up written, written about in Time Magazine. And it was I just thought it was so so funny. What I'm doing is not controversial. I'm painting pretty little pictures in a window, but the fact that 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 could be controversial really gave me the energy and gave me the feeling, wow, something like this rocks, you know, that people have a strong opinion about. So I thought there must be something there to it. That makes sense. Usually when there's a strong reaction, there is something behind that. And so do you prefer live demos versus painting on your own? Which informs your work more? Well, I paint... I paint um, basically six days a week at home. So when I when I get to do a live thing, it's pretty fun. And it's it's a strange power. You have to kind of you don't want to be impolite to people, but you have to you have to kind of create this sort of zone of space around yourself that people don't want to talk to you because a lot of times people think because I'm making something they think, okay, I can, I can interact with that person because I go to the bakery and I see them 
making cakes or I go to the pizza parlor, I see them making pizzas. So if I see another person making things, I can connect. But for me, it's as if I'm on a stage playing a song to them. So that's that's the difference. Yeah. And I would also wonder if that pizza maker would really want to be talked to <laughs> while he's making pizza. <laughs> he might not. Yeah, he might yeah, not. He's into his thing. So your pieces have a lot of repetition in them. Can you try your best to explain your process? I know it might be a difficult thing to communicate, but it is absolutely fascinating. Well, I love painting multiples of the same image, almost like I'm making prints. So I line up the amount that I'm going to paint for that day or that week, depending on how much space I have. And basically, I'll do about 40 or 50 a day. And then I'll line up all the panels mm -hmm. in a logical sequence. And I'll start off with the first color. You know, it might be blue. And I just put my blue spot on all the paintings. Then I go back with the other colors and, and start with big brushes and end up with smaller and smaller, more detailed. And then at the end, I sign my name or write a few words. And it's so they're basically started at the same time and finished at the same time. And for me, wow. it's I've always loved like art, American art of like the 40s and 50s and 60s, where it's either minimalism or things like Jackson Pollock when I mean, he felt he was in his paintings when he created them. He felt that there was no um, separation between him and the work. You know, it became a performance. And so those are my, besides music ideas, I think a lot about the sort of abstract expressionist ideas about becoming into the painting. I love that. So Dan, with Steve having such an incredibly large body of work, how did you go about choosing what to highlight in the book? Well, it was a fascinating challenge. Uh, originally, the idea spawned from a show that I put together with, with Steve and Shepard Ferry and Amanda Ferry in Los Angeles. And I thought this show was so successful. This was in 2016. The show was so successful and I had documented and archived the works for this show. I thought, oh, that, that sounds like a good way to start a book. That will be the book. I've got these images, you know, and Steve, of course, is so prolific. You know, he delivered hundreds of paintings to the gallery at that point. So it was a, theoretically, it was enough for a book. But then as I started getting into trying to fund the the campaign and listening to the Kickstarter, uh, you know, crowdfunding patrons who were supporting the book, I started to think, oh, wow, you know, there's so much, of course, I've known his work and have stuff of it, you know, stuff of his that's, uh, you know, a couple decades old at this point. But uh, I just, I thought, wow, there's so much more here. And maybe this is the book, who knows if there's more than one that will get made. So maybe I should make it more of a monograph, uh, make it more comprehensive. And so really one thing led to another and I had developed an Instagram account for the book and the campaign and had these followers. So I thought, well, let's put it out to the, to the masses. What do they have in their collection? I mean, it's impossible to cover all of his work. It's, it's insane right. actually, but <laughs> I tried to, I tried to put, you know, as broad a swath of what's out there as I could representing from each decade that he's been working and doing the best I can. And, and really this is a big book and I'm really proud of it, but it, it can't represent, you know, his, his life's work. It just isn't that. 
Um, I think Steve said this before, and, and I, I like this. Uh, it's a greatest hits, like a, an album or an art, a music artist. It's a greatest hits. That's what it is. But it doesn't mean that these are the only hits. <laughs> right. As a lot, as, as, you, as your listeners know, um, you know, some of the biggest artists in the world will release, you know, tons of greatest hits albums and packages and playlists and so forth. And this is just a small smattering of what I could get my hands on. What, And then I had people send me their collection to my apartment in New York City. And I photographed all of the paintings in my my little apartment here in New York. And that was the book. And so aside from all of these wonderful photographs, the book also includes written pieces from many an indie rock icon. And it seems like many indie rockers wanted to have their voice heard in praise of Steve's work. How did you decide who to include for that part? Well, again, for me, this was, this project was kind of written for me in a way, I think, because I, I'm already familiar with the scene, if you will. These are the same people that were if they weren't in New York City location-wise, they didn't live here, they played in the venues that me and a bunch of my, you know, my colleagues would venture to and see Steve's work. So, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, uh, the different names that are involved with this, they were playing in New York or performing in New York, they saw Steve's work, um, they were already fans and I knew how to reach them. So, Thankfully, uh, they were, you know, these these folks were very generous and, and and decided to to jump in. And really, it's a testament to Steve because I didn't have to do a whole lot of arm twisting. These were people that wanted to let people know how much they appreciate um, what he does. If you're just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis, and my guests are artist Steve Keen and producer Dan Ephraim. You've both mentioned the indie rock scene of New York City, but Steve, you started out in Charlottesville with your DIY ethic and very democratic way of of giving away stuff or selling it for incredibly cheap. What was it like in the early days when you started to see your own work everywhere? Gosh, I loved it because I had been painting, you know, for 20 years before that, I've been, you know, ever since elementary school, you know, I'd come home and paint every day. I was just like, that's what I did. But I didn't know what I wanted my art to do. I wanted my art to be useful, to have a purpose. And so if everybody in Charlottesville had one of my paintings, it was like everybody in Charlottesville had a magazine or something from the restaurant that I cooked at, something like that. It felt Mm. like it was useful. It felt like useful decoration. I love that. And so as far as your different bodies of work, we talked briefly about the album covers that you've designed, but a large portion of your work is also recreating album covers in your paintings. And I was wondering where the decision-making process for that starts. I love album covers. I love... um, Love the whole idea back in, you know, when I was a kid, you'd go to the record store and you'd have, you'd have $6 and you'd stand in the record store for an hour and a half deciding, you know, if you were going to get the Almond Brothers album or Derek and the Dominoes album or something like that. And you would just look at these covers and just, it would just be like, you know, obsessive viewing of all these, all these things. And so when I paint albums now, it's sort of like I'm making memorials to the past, you know, because 
I don't even know if people, you know, when people get their music, I don't know if they even connect that there's a, like a, a static image that goes with that body of work that they're getting, you know, at the time when they, I don't even know how people get music now, but, you know. I was going to say it's changed so much. <laughs> but it's like, they just seem like place marks of a certain time. And I just, you know, I love, I love crazy albums. I love good albums. I love albums that I'd never want to listen to. I just, you know, which is funny to me because I'll paint a lot of things that a lot of people will, not, will be like, well, I love the way you painted this, but I, I would never want to hang this in my house because I don't like that band. And I thought that was the funniest thing in the world. And, I, and it's sort of, in some ways, I think it's my favorite thing in the world, the fact that there is this tension because it's not, you know, it's not that record. It's a painting of that record. <laughs> Another body of work that people might be familiar with is your presidential collection. Can you talk about the inspiration behind that? I loved painting portraits. I think that kind of grew out of us living in Charlottesville because you're around so much American history. And I think those like presidents seem to be like everywhere, there's something about a president in Virginia. And it's sort of like, if you want to make something that seems almost like pop art, then paint a president because it's sort of like a, almost like a soup can. It's like everywhere. That makes sense. You know, when we talk about how cheaply you sell your artwork for, that hasn't really changed very much over the years. And on your website, you sell them in random batches. Yeah. Sometimes they turn up on eBay with a significant markup. How does that make you feel? That's terrific for me because I also put things up on eBay. If, um, <laughs> you know, if I feel like it, if I have, you know, extra stuff and people will see, oh, that guy's um, selling it cheaper than the other dude. So I'll buy his right away. So I think, I think it's, I love, you know, I, I don't feel in competition. I feel that honestly, one of my goals has always been to kind of make something that was like an American collectible. Like my parents always had stuff. My dad was a civil war historian and my mom always had different pieces of China and our house was filled with this stuff. It was kind of like a museum in a weird way. I love the fact that the stuff that they loved, you know, you could see it in a museum or you could see it in a catalog or you could see it other places. And now I'm making things that are in the hundreds of thousands and people resell them and they think of them as just a Steve Keen painting. You know, that's my name. And it's like, oh, it's a Steve mm -hmm. Keen painting. <laughs> it feels like I'm publishing something. It feels like I'm, you know, just putting this idea out in the world, like, I've always felt that I was doing one painting and it every day gets broken up into tiny pieces and just everybody gets to have a piece of it. So it's like, it seems like 30 years ago, I started one painting and I'm still working on that one painting. Oh, elaborate on that. Tell me more. Because the way I work, I'm hard on myself, I think. And I never really knew what a good painting was for myself. You know what? You know what something good is when you go to the museum. Hmm. But for yourself, I wanted to make it more like a, a diary, like a piece of something that I didn't have to judge myself on and just sort of record how I felt that day. I mean, maybe people can't tell the difference between the days, but some days my stroke might be more agitated or calmer looking. But I just felt that I wanted to come up with something that I didn't have to judge myself, but I knew I was trying my hardest because so much, so many things, you know, it's like, 
people don't do it because they think that they have to be the best at it or it doesn't matter. And I, I just wanted to do something middle of the road and go full on middle of the road with my pictures and not have to worry if they were really good or really bad. I love that. So a way to get past judgment and fear. I believe that's, you know, I know there's like there are different religions that probably speak upon that idea. And it does make me calm. It does make me think, you know, I never intended my art life, my career, if you call it that, to be this way. But I've, it feels um, like I've created just a place for myself that I never want to like leave. So you mentioned, Dan, that a lot of the original work and idea of photographing came from this art show that Shepard Fairey decided to put on. Steve, can you speak to how your relationship with Shepard began? Well, Dan really kind of, you know, put it together. He produced that show. And like, I didn't even know that Shepard knew who I was, but it was like fun that he did. And it's... um, it's just really, you know, amazing. Shepard Fairey's done an awful lot <laughs> in this world. And he's, um, it's just kind of incredible that I'm anywhere near him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Understandable. Um, so Dan, how did you become aware of Shepard being a fan of Steve's? Well, the short answer to this is I had worked with him on, uh, in it, you know, uh, kind of once one person removed on a project a few years before I contacted him about Steve. And I had this, the full story, I think is kind of funny. I had gone to Los Angeles where he's based for uh, music business work. And I'd promised myself, okay, I'm out in LA for whatever reason, that's the time I'll get in touch with Shepard. You know, I'll do that then I'll see if he's, if he's even responsive. And I went through this whole trip and as it would be, it's a business trip. And things were crazy and very busy. And, you know, I forgot. And the last day I was there, I was literally on Venice beach toasting myself that I had like worked this long couple of weeks and, you know, worked hard and gotten a lot done and reflecting a bit. And I realized, Oh my God, I didn't reach out to Shepard Ferry. Like that was one of my, <laughs> you know, one of my goals was to at least just, you know, try and reach him somehow. Cause I didn't have his, even this contact information. So I'm on the beach and, um, literally on the beach and I'm looking in on my Palm pilot at the time <laughs> at his website for, and I was like, Oh, there's this gallery, you know, there's an email address info at subliminalprojects.com. And okay, well, you know, I, I failed. I didn't actually reach him before I left, but I can send an email to info at maybe it'll get to him. Hmm. You know, that's literally what I thought. So I sent an email that just said subject, Steve Keen. Uh, and I, and nothing else. I don't think I said, dear Shepard or anything. I just said, I, I just wrote, are you a fan? And my name. And, you know, I swear I got an email back within 20 minutes. I was still on the beach uh, and I got an email back. I was I just confused. Who would write back? That's probably an autoresponder. And it's, it's Shepard. And he had emailed back. He's like, what, what about Steve? I'm a huge fan. Mm. Uh, so I'm paraphrasing, of course, but and I, I, then I said, I, I was speechless. I didn't know what, he literally asked me, what do, what do you want? You know, what, what is it that you, what do you, <laughs> I don't know what I want at that point. I just wanted to see <laughs> if he was, if he knew who Steve was and if he was a fan. And, and so I just said, well, uh, if you're a fan, um, would you be interested in, I literally, I think I pitched him right there. How about a show? 
And he responded almost immediately, you know, come in tomorrow. We'll, we'll talk about it. And so I changed my flight and uh, went in and met with him and his, his folks there. And they like literally, you know, gave me a, a, a couple windows of time that I, you know, that I cleared with Steve and that's the show. I mean, I mean, this, it's, it's a crazy story, but honestly, that's, this is exactly how I remember it. And it, it's one of the most fascinating things to me and, and satisfying because it was so of the moment and that he would actually answer an email from info at to his, you know, I don't know exactly how many people he has working for him, but there's a lot. And, um, you know, there are people that are paid to answer the, the info at it's not him. Um, and I think it just really shows you like how inspired and how honest he is. And I just think that that's a real, you know, it's a really important thing for the book, the book really couldn't have happened without this type of spark. I mean, looking back on this, you know, he's a huge part of this for a number of reasons, but you need your champions. You need people that will stand up and say, I believe in this. And um, yeah. I'm, I'm proud to say that I believe in this. Um, Steve's been inspiring to me for decades. And I'm really, really, really proud that all these other people without any uh, hesitation jumped up and said, I am too. Yeah, it's pretty wonderful to see an artist you love fanboying over another artist you love. That's just, (laughs) that is absolutely a beautiful thing. So will there be art shows touring around the country in support of this book? We recently uh, put together a show in Los Angeles, a 30-year retrospective of Steve's work, which included... uh, pieces from several different collections uh, from around the country that were flown in for specifically for this show. And, and there is talk of, um, of bringing this retrospective, which is really a, um, a few collectors that we both know have, have basically allowed me and us to get their works together, collect them and send them around. So we're hoping to do something in, I'm not sure if I've even discussed this with Steve yet, but <laughs> we're hoping to do something in October because there's a big uh, New York art book fair. So there, there should be something around that, you know, in some capacity. So we'll see, but there's a lot of people that have a lot of goodwill and, and there's a lot of work out there and it's, it, it, I'm excited to, to show some of this work and I'm excited to see Steve's reaction to it because <laughs> some of this work is, was made in, you know, in the, in the nineties. And I, yet I don't think he's seen it once it goes out the door, right, Steve? I mean, I it's, don't get, it's gone. I don't get to see my work. I make it, and then, it, then I have to UPS it two days later. <laughs> and some of these things have not been, some of these pieces have not been seen at all. Like, anyway, I'm really excited about the retrospective idea just because there are so many fans out there and they live in so many different areas. And Steve has had such a massive reach and such an influence and, you know, it's it's a really fun thing to try and put these together. I hope we can do a, a lot more. I hope you can, too. And please keep Atlanta on your radar. I'm all for it. Let's go. Sounds good. Well, to close out, Steve, I wanted to ask you, a lot of people I know think of you as a folk artist, which I think factually, as far as terminology, isn't completely accurate, considering that you do have classical training and went to Yale Art School. How do you want to be remembered? Do you consider yourself still an outsider? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm influenced by folk art, like Howard Finster, and um, even Morris Katz, this guy that painted about 100,000 pictures 
in New York City in the 50s. And you can find his work oh. on the sidewalks every once in a while. And I did. And oh, wow. um, I love the idea. Something that wasn't supposed to be respected later becomes cherished. You know, the idea that people don't really know what to make of it at the beginning then is loved at the end. And I think of folk art being like that. It's meant to be just the work of an eccentric. And then people see that it has, you know, traditional beauty in it, like, you know, like real art. That was 100% real artist Steve Keen, along with producer Dan Ephraim. More information about the Steve Keen art book is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll hear how the intersection of art and environmentalism is explored in the Museum of Design Atlanta's exhibition, Full Circle, Design Without End. And later, the premiere of our series, H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis, and it is great to have you along. Since the industrial age, human development has had immense effect on our planet's natural ecosystem. The Museum of Design Atlanta's exhibition, Full Circle, Design Without End, explores how design projects can be engineered to sustain and regenerate natural systems. Earlier this year, the exhibition's co-curator, Veronica Klusik, and MODA's executive director, Laura Flusch, joined City Lights host Lois Reitzes to talk about some of the exhibit's features. They began by explaining where the idea for the exhibition started. This exhibition came into being about three years ago when MODA started a conversation with the Candida Fund about regenerative design or the idea that we can design buildings, systems, landscapes, objects that make positive impact on the environment. And we began to work with them on a project which was meant to bring the idea of regenerative design and the idea of design as one of the most powerful tools we have for taking on climate change to the Atlanta audience. We share the Candida Fund's interest in climate change. And at Moda, we believe that design inspires change, transforms lives, and that it makes the world a better place. And it can be used to take on some of the biggest problems that we have. Climate change is right up there, if not the number one uh, one. So we began a collaboration with Candida in order to elevate that conversation here in our city. Hmm. 
design is an enormous umbrella of different fields of expertise. There's architecture, urban planning, product design, fashion. Can you tell us about the different areas of design the show explores? At Moda, we kind of approach design in a little bit of a different way in that we define it as a process and as an agent of change. Um, So when we came into the full circle exhibition, we kind of came in with a very wide scope of what regenerative design can look like. So we included a lot of the fields of design that you mentioned, like architecture, industrial design. So there's a lot of products in the exhibition. We also included landscape design, but then we also included um, a few examples of systems design, um, especially around, for example, agricultural systems as well. Yeah, so I think that covers a lot of the big ones. Are there examples of everyday objects or technologies we all know whose design has been re-envisioned through this lens of ecological conservation? There's so many exciting ones, Lois. For example, there is a section about circular design, which is the idea of not creating virgin materials like virgin plastic or virgin nylon, but being able to take the plastic and nylon objects we have and recycle and reuse them. So there are some exciting companies that are doing things like that. There's one called Bureo. They work out of South America and they rescue fishing nets. Fishing nets are the single largest contributor of plastic pollution in our oceans. So they rescue fishing nets that have been discarded in the oceans, recycle them, and then work with companies like Patagonia to turn them into outerwear and sports clothing that we might wear. Um, There's another very exciting company called Aquafil. They're Italian-based, but they have an outpost here in Cartersville, and they recycle carpets and fishing nets and other plastics and turn it into a fiber called Econil that lots of companies use to create rugs, outerwear, purses, sunglasses, swimsuits, chairs, lots of different things. So there's a lot of objects like that. I just am amazed by that and so encouraged by it. I mean, to think of what is essentially trash and ruining our environment and collecting it and then turning it into something with purpose and with design is just amazing. It's true. And I think one of the really important things that comes through in the exhibition and and that I've come to think more about is how we as consumers can make those conscious choices. So for example, if you need to refurnish your office, you could consciously choose to put human scale products in it because they also work with the company Bureo and they make products that are net positive and they use a lot of recycled materials from fishing nets and and other things in their products. So I think an important piece there is that we can be agents of the change just as individuals. It takes educating people though. I mean, certainly it's wonderful to hear about these examples. How do you get it out before a wider audience though? Well, certainly we hope people will come in and see the exhibition. 
but we are doing a lot of programming. The exhibition is up until September 25th, and MODA programming happens uh, both virtually and in real life. So we will have some talks and events that are happening on different sites, like in the Candida building at Georgia Tech, or in a, a landscape in Avondale Park that's being renewed by a company called Shades of Green here in Atlanta. So we'll be out seeing things and participating in things and inviting people to join us. Um, and then we'll also be hearing from experts who are speaking virtually from across the world to, to help us understand more about this subject. Outstanding. We've mentioned the Candida building now more than once. In the category of sustainable architecture, you feature this Atlanta landmark, which is called the Candida Living Building for Innovative Sustainable Design at Georgia Tech. Students attend classes in what is designated as one of the greenest buildings in the world. Will you describe its design and how the building incorporates living natural systems? Well, the Candida building is, I believe, the 28th building on the globe to be designated as a living building, which is the highest green standard there is for architecture in the world. In order to become a living building, a building has to produce more energy than it uses, which the Candida building does. It has to clean and restore water into the ground more than it uses, which it does. Um, so the Candida building is in some ways acting as a living part of our environment and mimicking um, the things that our natural systems do by creating energy and cleaning water. It was also created using a lot of reused materials in order that they wouldn't land in landfills. Um, and that's another important piece and then I think it's an amazing thing for us to have in Atlanta because we can visit it as the public and there are Georgia Tech students in there. And it's a great study in, in how we can create beautiful, really functional buildings that make a positive impact um, rather than try to do less, less harm. Yeah, the designers, I read the Miller-Holt Partnership and the architectural firm of Lord X Sargent claim that the Candida building generates more solar energy than it uses. Where does this energy go? The energy goes back into our energy system to be used in other places. And I was on a tour the other day of the Candida building and a, a student who was giving us the tour told us I believe she said it was producing about 210% of the energy it uses. My goodness. There's a VR experience for visitors where you can virtually tour the Candida building. How does that virtual interaction and other displays in the exhibition, how do those give us a sense of the building's special regenerative components? Well, of course, we have some, some text panels that talk about the building and, and what it achieves. But when you put on the VR headset, you really are right there in the building. 
And it has such fidelity that you're able to walk around and read the signage they have up in the building explaining how the building works. You can visit things like the extraordinary toilets that uh, everybody loves to visit when they visit the Candida building because they use very little water and a special foam to deal with what goes in them. So it gives you a chance to walk around, to look at the materials from which the building is made, to look at the systems that are running it, to read the things they have on the wall there, uh, and just get the feeling of what it's like to be in a building like that. Mm. There is a dress in the exhibition. I saw the carbon garden dress that uses algae to capture CO2 and emit oxygen for its wearer to breathe. I am very curious about how this works. We're going to see these carbon garden dresses on the runways. I would love to see these on the runway someday. The idea behind the project itself is a bit more speculative. So the designer created these garments within a vision for the future in which individuals are made aware of their carbon impact, of their individual carbon impact. And it's the dress is meant to become kind of an integration into this awareness um, and the sense that in this imagined future, we would all receive a certain amount of carbon credits per day that we could use, that whenever we make an action, we use up these carbon credits. And by wearing this dress, we can earn more carbon credits because our dress is pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and kind of cleaning the atmosphere in this while we wear it. So it's a very interesting dress in the sense that it encourages us to both be aware of our carbon impact as well as encourages us to deepen our relationship with the algae that we're wearing. And if there are shoes to match, you could quite literally shrink your carbon footprint, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's just amazing to think about these things. Among the types of design that can help foster natural ecosystems recovery, this exhibition at Moda even includes game design. How can gaming enthusiasts become part of the movement to help our environment. Games are so important, I think, Lois, in that similar to the, the speculative design project that Veronica described, they help us imagine another way of being or living or another reality. When we play a game, whether it's a video game or whether it's a board game, and we have both in the exhibition, we take ourselves to another realm and we have to deal with the consequences of our actions and other people's actions just the way we do in the real world. So we get a lot of practice at those sorts of things. Over the past decade or so, game designers, and again, both video game and board game designers have been collaborating with scientists and ecologists and environmentalists. And there's a lot of games out there now that help us imagine a world in which we are more responsible to nature and the ecosystems that we than we have been in the past. And so we bring the games in and encourage people to sit down and enjoy them, both for the practice of imagining a different world and, and having fun, 
but also getting acquainted, you know, game design is, is a design field as well. Getting acquainted with the work of the designers who've created these amazing experiences that help us think about how the world can be a better place. Fantastic. Will you tell us about some projects in the Atlanta area underway now to restore natural ecosystems here, such as the Chattahoochee Riverland study? Sure. In the Atlanta area, there's actually a good amount of people who have been working to bring regenerative design to light. One is, as you mentioned, the Chattahoochee Riverland study. The study itself was led by a landscape architecture firm, Namescape, and they partnered with the Atlanta Regional Commission, uh, the Trust for Public Lands, Cobb County, and the city of Atlanta, I believe were the four big clients who they partnered with to imagine a 125-mile multimodal trail that runs along the Chattahoochee. This is because the Chattahoochee is such an important ecological system within our area that runs right through Atlanta. And most people don't even realize that it's so close to us and don't engage with it very often. And so the goals of the trail are to create a space where and spaces where people can connect with the river again and at the same time is designed in a way that restores the ecosystem. And also they hope that by bringing people closer to the river, it will increase the conservation because you'll have more people directly engaged and with the ecosystem and witnessing and being able to notice if there's pollution or things like this. And so one study that was done, I believe since then, the next steps are to begin a pilot project in Cobb County. So the project team is currently working on designing and seeing if they can bring that to light, um, which is very exciting. Another Atlanta-based firm that's in the exhibition is Shades of Green Permaculture, and they do regenerative landscape design on multiple scales. So anything from small backyards to larger community farms. And they bring the ideology of permaculture, which essentially brings the natural patterns of ecosystems into how we manage our land. So it, they focus a lot on bringing in native species and creating cycles of rainwater capture and use. And they essentially create systems that, or create farms and productive landscapes that operate as individual ecosystems on their own, but still provide food for people and spaces for things like bees and butterflies to come in and pollinate as well. MODA's Executive Director, Laura Flusch, and co-curator, Veronica Klusik. The Museum of Design Atlanta's exhibition, Full Circle, Design Without End, is on view through September 25th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Just ahead, the premiere of our new series, H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. And today, H. is featuring the legendary Anita O'Day. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE.
is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes. In for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. WABE's H. Johnson has been a fixture on our station since 1978. As host of both blues classics and jazz classics, H. continually educates and entertains WABE listeners every Friday and Saturday night. Now, H is adding City Lights music contributor to his exceedingly long resume, and I'm happy to announce that he'll be joining us every other Friday to share a bit from his College of Jazz knowledge. This is H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. A lot of times I'm always trying to get people to understand and appreciate my passion, which is jazz. And I listen to everything in jazz I can. Now, jazz is a music that if you listen to all of it, you won't like all of it, just like anything else. And I think that's one of the problems with jazz. A lot of non-jazz fans think that if they listen to it, they don't like it, that they just plain don't like jazz overall. That's not so. You have to find the right outlet. A lot of people found it when they listened to Dave Brubeck doing Take Five and Errol Garner doing Misty and John Coltrane doing My Favorite Things. You know, the list goes on. But you have to hear the right artist doing the right thing. Right now, for those aspiring young ladies who want to sing, I suggest that, yeah, you can listen to Billie Holiday, listen to Sarah Vaughan, listen to Peggy Lee, but if you want to swing, listen to Anita O'Day. She was one of the most swinging vocalists out there. She had ups and downs, but Anita was an original. She didn't sound like anyone else, except maybe there may be times when she come close to sounding a little, perhaps, if you listen carefully, like Billie Holiday. But she wasn't a Billie Holiday imitator. She had her own thing going. And she had a few hit musicals with big bands like Let Me Off Uptown with Roy Eldridge. So, having said all that, you have to just listen to Anita O'Day. There's a lot of documents out on her. And the reason I'm talking about her is once someone leaves us, the public has a tendency to forget. And sometimes they are replaced mediocre imitators. Am I making sense? I mean, I can listen to some of the new people now singing and I'll say, oh, she's been listening to Anita O'Day because they'll be trying to phrase and, and swing like Anita and they don't quite get it, but I know who they're trying to get it from. That's true for so many artists, so many artists, Anita being one of them. So I suggest if you want to hear the best or one of the best in jazz vocals, pick up on some Anita O'Day, especially swinging standards. Try Anita O'Day singing Yesterday, All My Troubles Seem Too Far Away. She has a version of that along with Jerome. See, that was the Beatles, Yesterday. And Anita O'Day integrated that into a Yesterday and Yesterdays, which is a Jerome Kern composition. And she meshes and melts them into one performance. It's awesome. Absolutely awesome. You have to hear it to believe it. And you have to be familiar with both songs to know where she's coming from improvising. So listen to Onita O'Day and learn. Bye. 
WABE's H. Johnson and our new series, H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. Catch H.'s Blues Classic Show tonight and every Friday from 10 p.m. till midnight, and make sure to return for Jazz Classics every Saturday night from 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. right here on 90.1 WABE. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., funk and soul musician Joy stops by ahead of her upcoming Sounds Like ATL headlining gig at City Winery. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.